Oh. Great demonstration of critical thinking, both of you. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so should we go with buttered popcorn, even though that's going to ruin both the Jelly Belly Beans <laughs> and movie theaters for life? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. This is going to live rent-free in your head for the rest of your oh, life. God. Welcome to Coffee and Geography, where my guests and I geek out about the world and everything on it, discovering that we are all geographers in some way, shape or form. I'm your host, Kit, and my pronouns are they, them or she, her. So settle down with a brew, hit that subscribe or follow button and enjoy the listen. Hello everyone, we're back for another round of droning about geography. Uh, well, you seem to have enjoyed season one uh, last year, and I guess you don't mind hearing a little bit more of us geeks talking about it. And I'll tell you what, we're going to go straight in with a very exciting lineup. Now, last season you heard from plenty of teachers, uh, high school teachers, geography teachers, etc. You've heard from students, well, ex-students of mine that I used to teach when I used to be a high school teacher. But now we have a current high school teacher, a high school teacher and student i've completely mucked up that intro it was going to be even more better than it is you know what? i'm just going to leave that in in the edit leave but it, it was going to be it. even better than that the intro i was going to say oh the student has dragged their teacher along that's what i was going to say but I've oh yeah it. that's good that's good <laughs> and so hello and happy new year to Surya panyam and lauren sinclair hello to you both Happy New Year. It's an honor to be here. I really enjoy the podcast. And thank you, Surya, for, yes, coming along with me. Yeah, Happy New Year. Thank you for having me, Kit. And thank you for inviting me, uh, Miss Sinclair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, actually, yeah. So just to be clear from the outset, right? Yes. Is it, Am I going to call you Lauren or Miss Sinclair? Either way works. I So the kids generally call me Sinclair. Okay. Or Madame Sinclair, because we are a French school as well. Ooh. Or, yeah, Miss Sinclair, all of these things. I will respond to all of them. <laughs> <laughs> so that's up to you. But yes, I mean, my Twitter handle is Mrs. Sinclair Maps. So I get a lot of people just calling me Mrs. Sinclair, which is just fine with me. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Right. Good. Right, so let's introduce uh, you both. So, Lauren, so you are, <laughs> I love what you've put here. You are a Where's Waldo, that's Where's Wally for us in the United Kingdom, right? Yes, a Where's it Waldo is. and Carmen Sandiego Aficionado, uh, who teaches GIS, digital mapping to middle schoolers in Portland, Oregon, in the United States. She teaches sixth graders to make semi-obnoxious maps with GIFs and inside jokes, but never comic sans. Oh, never. God, thank you. <laughs> never teach my own heart. Never comic sense. And you also never. teach uh, eighth graders the same spatial analysis that you learned in grad school. Wow. She also teaches environmental science using GIS and helps other teachers to bring uh, in geo inquiries into their classrooms. In your spare time, uh, Lauren likes to work with Esri as a teacher consultant and believes that kids are inherently good at GIS. And since kids these days communicate visual media, GIS should be taught in every K to 12. So basically, primary all the way through to secondary school institution in the world totally agree totally agree yes i yeah. still stand by that statement <laughs> now surya this is a chance for you to turn your tables on your ex-teacher right is there anything you'd like to call out or add to uh miss sinclair's Uh-oh. introduction <laughs> yeah i mean you're a really great teacher your class was oh. definitely my favorite in middle school and i, Let- I love your <laughs> Let, let the record show I've not paid Surya, nope. nor nope. have I taught Surya for several years, so there is no incentive. <laughs> I can't grade Surya's work and give him a better grade for this. <laughs> I'm just going to take your word on that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. so, so Surya, so Surya, you're a sophomore at, the, at um, a high school in Portland, Oregon, and you started a Mapathon club. Uh, which is a club aimed to help map areas experience uh, natural disasters. And in your free time, you play tennis, chess, and the drums. So, Lauren, here's your chance to comment on Surya's intro. Oh, no. I definitely didn't know about the drums. That one surprises me. Chess does not surprise me. And really, honestly, the reason I invited Surya is... I've had many students over the years reach back once they're in high school and say, hey, what was that cool tool that we used uh, in your GIS class? Could you give me access? And of course, I support them. 
But Surya has done more than the others, which is he said, hey, that thing that we did, I want to start a club where I teach other students in high school to do it, and I will run it all myself. Can I just ping you if I have any questions? I mean, this guy is is really like my dream of, oh, that's so great. I hope more students do this. And yeah, yeah very driven. And I have to say, um, Lauren, you know, that f- your influence on that and mo- you know giving Syria that motivation and that passion to that that Syria you can you can grab onto and run with so great you know teachers they can inspire us in that respect so Syria for for our before we move on to a few other things for those of people listening who don't know most people will know but for those who do not know can you explain to listeners what we mean by GIS because we've said that now about three or four times and there may be a couple of people thinking what is this GIS that they keep mentioning so for the sake of listeners who don't know what is GIS yeah it's just this big interface where you can create maps Uh, I remember in middle school we created this really fun map uh, where I think it was like a haunted house map where we uh, went around our school and just uh, like uh, marked places that were like haunted it it was like it was really (laughs) a lot of fun you can use it for fun and then you can also use it to help a lot of people with Mapathon, because uh, the Mapathon uses uh, satellite imagery uh, from a map called OpenStreetMap, mm-hmm. which is part of ArcGIS. So, yeah, it's it's a great platform, and I really love it. Yeah, and we're definitely going to come back and talk about Mapathons and and uh, and missing maps in particular, because that's just a really worthwhile thing that that geeks like us can can do. St- really enjoy it but also do something really meaningful for for people around the world right okay so um i have my my because i of course being english I'm, i've got my cup of tea here um despite the fact that this podcast is called coffee and geography i'm a tea drinker <laughs> that make any sense? Now, me too uh, <laughs> oh, so, well. Syria, so so you've got tea so what have you do you have a particular brand that you like to drink syria uh it's it's this uh indian company called masala chai i love it a lot my mom makes it in a really special way on the stove it's really really good i just love it lovely and now i know and laura i know you can't taste what you're drinking right now but what what fairly yeah i'm on day five of covid and thankfully it hasn't been horrible i've just slept for about five days straight so (laughs) This coffee is to get me through this morning, and then I'll take another nap. But no, uh, being from Portland, Oregon, one of the things that defines the sense of place for me there is our coffee culture. Mm. And so I am drinking one of my favorite Kova coffees. Kova is a local uh, roaster in Portland. And this one is called the SO Blend, and it's described as rich and chocolatey with blends from East Africa, Central and South America. And it is my daily drinker. It is just perfect. So if because you, you, you're so you love that brand so much, you love that brew so much that you mm-hmm. can taste it mentally. If not physically can, right now. You know, I can taste that I'm drinking coffee, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't taste all the details I usually can, and I smell nothing. So, yeah, oh, I'm no. nose, to, nose to the cup, and it smells like water, so I have no idea what's going oh. on really today. But I can trust it because I've been drinking it for years. So, Well, my, my partner, unfortunately, you know, came down with COVID as well. I fortunately wasn't, you know, wasn't wasn't terrible with it, but definitely lost sense of taste. And she is an avid coffee drinker. I was like, yeah. no, I can't. So, yeah, I can, I can, yeah, by proxy, I can feel your pain. <laughs> <laughs> um, so coming back to you, mentioned mentioned where you are in Portland, um Oregon and I put in the zip code that you gave me which is postman yeah. and and you're right at the confluence of the so let's see of the Columbia River mm-hmm. and the Willamette River oh this is really it looks like a really interesting part of the city that you're based oh, in it's fantastic yeah Surya have you grown up here in Portland yeah I've been here my whole life yeah Every time I say Surya, my computer is opening up, hey Siri, I don't know how to turn that off. It happens with a lot of people. Okay. <laughs> You're not the first person, don't worry. <laughs> anyway, Surya, you've you've grown up in Portland, haven't you? Yeah, and uh, yeah, speaking of the Willamette River, there's just so many bridges. It's, it's really pretty to drive on the river because you just look everywhere and there's just bridges, like all different uh, sorts of designs and shapes and colors. So it's, it's really cool to be here 
it's, it's quite braided as well. I mean, you've got um, you've got Hayden Island, which is just basically a giant eot by the looks of it. Government yep. Island as well. Yeah, yeah, and of course, it's right on the um, Oregon-Washington border, so the states of uh, Oregon and Washington. And mm-hmm. um, I haven't been to, I mean, Oregon, it's really weird because I've spent plenty of time in California. I've spent a little bit of time in Washington state. Um, but Oregon remains this one state, which is just missing from my states I've been to map. It's just like just there yeah. as a whole. Um, but so what is it? So you've, so Surya, you said you'd, you've been here all your life. What what does Portland mean to you? I mean, if if you were to say, you know, you go and visit friends and family elsewhere, and you were to talk about Portland and kind of, you know, what it means to you as as an individual. What what speaks to to Suri the person as someone from Portland, Oregon? Yeah, uh, I think uh, just one of the really great uh, facets of Portland is just the nature. Because everywhere you look, uh, for example, right outside my house, there's just so many trees and uh, so many different like types of trees. It's really like it feels very uh, beautiful and like clean. And it's that's one of the things I really like about Portland, just the nature aspect of it, and the fact that uh, we live by so many rivers, and it's, it's just a beautiful place to be in general. Like I go to other uh, natural like uh, 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 parks or whatever, and I just see, like it just looks like Portland to me because it's just so beautiful. So that's the one thing I bring up when I'm talking with uh, family from other places, just the nature. What about yourself, Lauren? Well, same. And, you know, I have a little bit of an outsider's perspective. I've been in Portland for 11 years, but I moved there from the southeastern United States, which is a very different uh, geographical and and geological um, uh, area. And for me, same as Surya is saying, I just felt like I had moved to paradise. This was the place that I had always read about and dreamed of. I was lucky in that I moved to Portland for my master's in geography. So the first class I took was called Sense of Place in Oregon. And now that I've done it that way, if I ever move again, I will immediately enroll in a geography course about that place because I was immediately um, just immersed in maps and um, literature and field trips of my new home that really showed what made it what it is and what's behind all of that beautiful nature that Surya is talking about. Um, The stuff that's right, right in our backyards really, but also the geomorphology that shapes it. So I ended up getting a master's in geomorphology um, as a result, just because I was so fascinated by it. Yeah, that and the west the west coast of the United States for me is one of the most fascinating part. You know, there's such. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we could talk forever on a completely separate episode. You know, regards to how the geological history and how that has shaped the landscape, and then mm-hmm. of course the, the 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 human processes that take place, everything from settlement colonialization and and oh, yeah. you know how how indigenous um, uses of the area as well. Because yes. if I if I remember right, you've got a number of there's a number of Indian reservations around Portland as well. I believe um, there are definitely many tribal lands, and we sit on the lands of of many different groups, including I'm just thinking off the top of my head, Cowlitz and Salish, and I'm sure I'm forgetting some that are that are more um, obvious. But um, yeah, there are definite chapters of human history that have shaped the landscape, particularly around Portland. That was really interesting to, for me to learn about. And even just going back further to glaciation and ice dams and the Missoula floods ripping through the area. It's it's a place that you could just study forever. Yeah, because wasn't, wasn't the area part of it or maybe just to the east was there a giant inland sea or something uh, or have I got that the so other there way was, yeah it was more the Cordilleran ice sheet up north of us so kind of think closer to the Canada border and there was an area up oh gosh uh, it would have been closer to modern day Montana I believe mm. don't quote me on this it's been it's been almost 10 years since my <laughs> master's research but um but yeah that as the last ice age came to a close, a lot of that was was melting. You had this big 
lake, this glacial lake held behind an ice dam. And when it burst, it created the Columbia River Gorge, which is this yes. massive, I mean, there, there was a, a precedent stream there, but it widened and deepened it. And then you have lava flows. I, it's just such a dynamic landscape that's amazing. I'm. You can probably see, I know the podcast listeners can't, I'm sitting in front of a beautiful photo from yes. a local photographer of Mount Hood, um, known traditionally as White East by White indigenous East. peoples. Um, and it's, it's a volcanic landscape. So there's so much yep. going on that you just can't get bored here. <laughs> Yeah, and the the the, vol- the, the volcanic um, history is something I'm more familiar with, so because I have yeah. deep connections to the Bozeman Montana area and the Yellowstone National Park yes. area, so that's that's yes, yes. that's part of the USA I know pretty well. Glace and then the glacial, uh, yeah, like the the house where uh, my family has um, the place where my family has a house is it's just one just great big massive glacial trough, and it's just absolutely gorgeous. Everyone go back, listen to that episode. It's one of my favorites from Aww. season one. <laughs> uh, Surya and my experience here in Portland that's special is we both met at an international school. Okay. And we, so our primary school is a French school and my family is French. So that's very special to me. Um, but then when we get to our sixth grade program, how old were you in sixth grade, Surya? Uh, I believe I was 11 or 10. Yeah. yeah, that's what I think. Our, our students are a little younger in sixth grade than they tend to be at our public schools in the area. Oh, okay. But um, at that age, students can choose between one of four different language tracks or combine them. So Mandarin, German, French, advanced French, um, Spanish. And also, in addition to that, most of our families come from international backgrounds where they already speak other languages at home. So I'm privileged to be part of this internationally minded school that really for me plays into what it is to be a geography teacher and to teach students the value of geography. We are in Portland and we study we study our own unique local and regional geography, but really we always have a global mindset. And I think that for Surya and many of the students especially in my eighth grade class, they immediately connect GIS to these global connections they already have through their own personal or family connections. Is that fair to say, Surya? Yeah, for sure. You know, uh, it just uh, felt more natural, I guess, when we're mapping in different places that we already have the background uh, from all these different countries. I I remember in in individuals and societies, which is our social study class, we learned a lot about uh, mainly about European history since uh, uh, since the school is a French school, and it was just cool to connect like the things that we learned from social studies to this GIS. So yeah, mm. and it dispels that myth as well that that for that some people have that GIS is only really for you know mostly physical processes, whereas actually it there is so much you can do with the human side. I mean, you've people also then go and say, oh yeah, well, just, just population and demographic stuff like that. No, actually there is a hell of a lot more that that can be done with that. And, and I would love to, um, I'd love, there's plenty of people listening who, who absolutely adore using GIS in the classroom. And I'm going to be very, very lucky to talk to Alistair Hamill, a good friend of mine. Oh, I love Alistair. Yeah, 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 exactly. See, look, this, this, yeah, exactly. There you go, Alistair. Um, so, um, (laughs) Yeah, and and he will he will you know he will go on forever about these kind of things. But the connections yeah. that you can make, well, you can see them for yourself when you when you use GIS. You can actually make those links and yes. have the have this visual representation of of how we are interconnected with each other. Um, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. So, Surya, if I want you to think, then let's have a talk about um, this mapathon and. Um, missing maps in particular so you because you've you've put on here that you consider yourself to be a geographer mostly because of the, what you're doing with with maps and missing maps and stuff yeah. like that and well you, you've put quite a lot of information here but I want you to tell us um what you've been doing at, at school with your mapathon and yeah tell us a little bit about missing maps and and from your point of view why you're so keen to kind of kind of like push the the, the the message that this is something that we should all should be considering doing. Yeah, uh, for listeners who don't know what mapathons are, they're mapping events in which like volunteers they use uh, 
imagery to satellite imagery to map buildings and roads and other important landmarks in areas experiencing like a natural disaster. And it's all in real time, which is pretty cool. I took me a while to believe that, hey, we're actually doing this right now in real time, but it's it's really cool. And uh yeah, and uh missing maps provides us the resources to do that, which uh, I'm really grateful for. Uh so at, at Jesuit, uh which is my high school, I started Mapathon Club. Uh so we meet every other week and we just uh pick a place and just start mapping all together. And it's uh, a lot of fun, it, which is really important. I think that it's not only we're helping a lot of people, we're actually having a lot of fun while doing it. And uh, it, it's, I consider myself to be a geographer uh, just based on Mapathon Club, just based on the fact that like, I'm mapping these areas that like, that uh, aren't really, that haven't been mapped really before by anybody. They're just, they like, uh, they just aren't there. So I just feel like a geographer that I'm there kind of making an impact in mapping this area that previously wasn't mapped. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to read the blurb straight off the Missing Maps uh, website because it really does give important context, which it says here, um, putting the world's vulnerable communities on the map. Each year, disasters around the world kill nearly 100,000 and affects or displace 200 million people. Many of these places where the disasters occur are literally missing from open and accessible maps and first responders lack the information to make valuable decisions regarding relief efforts. So Missing Maps is an open collaborative project in which you can help map areas where humanitarian organizations are trying to meet the needs of people who live at risk of disasters and crises. And yeah, if you do not have that spatial information, you cannot deploy uh, and plan for the resources to get to where they need to be it is impossible um, the only thing you could pro probably use is a very grainy satellite image because as well satellite imagery is not very good for these areas either because there is no and this is this is where it comes to the whole most capitalist way of working is that there is no t benefit to to mapping very remote areas right as far as like economy that kind of thing yeah yeah no i i love working with missing maps for that reason but also you know i i went to my first mapathon i don't know five years ago something like that and this is the way most most of my experience is if i do something with gis and i enjoy it i think oh kids can do this and kids should be doing this so i took it back to my school and uh, tried it with a class, saw how successful they were, and more than that, how seriously all my students took it. I think there was some worry initially when I told university people um, that, hey, I'm going to have a mapathon with ages 13 and up. They were like, well, you know, this is a serious thing. This is this actually impacts people who are on these maps. So, are your kids going to goof around, or are they going to take it seriously? I've never seen students take anything so seriously because they immediately understood this is real and I am being trusted with something that can help real people. Um, so that's empowering in and of itself. I think that's that's a really beautiful example. But then I went to the next level, which was saying, well, you know, what if students can actually lead this and I can just be the helper? And Surya was one of those eighth grade students who stepped up and said, yeah, I'd like to lead one of these events and use all the materials on Missing Maps website and organize an event that I can't remember how many people we had at your mapathon at our school, Surya. Yeah, I think we had over 20 people. So it was yeah, really I successful. Wow. Yeah. And, and Surya and a team of eighth graders led the entire program. And I was just there to help troubleshoot if any kid need help, needed help setting up their account or something. But it was so successful that then when Surya said, hey, I'm taking this to high school, I was just so thrilled because really, I think we need to give students more meaningful ways to engage with geography, not just hypotheticals, right? Not just, oh, here's a map of climate change and what could happen, but here's a way that you can identify where people live so that they can receive either education, aid, a check-in, evacuation orders, whatever is needed at that time. Yeah, I, this, there's two things that came to my mind there. Is that one is is student leadership. I, I've always been a massive advocate of student leadership, and I used to have uh, high school students actually help me run the geography department because 
their insight that they gave was something that you know I was as as I get older would increasingly get further and further further away and and disconnected with so and then they used to also help me run the field work and run some of the you know GIS kind of um, data collection data analysis and things like that and the second thing is is as you just said is I I get so frustrated as someone who works with um, young people that people from the outside look at it and say oh how can you work with teenagers aren't they always naughty or they always disrespectful you can't trust them with these kind of things and then this completely blows that out of the water and debunks that completely because I've ever known the opposite of course you can have some some you know nefarious so-and-sos every now and then of course you are we all we all are at all ages but whenever I've given students responsibility of doing something and they've seen the purpose of it they've always grabbed the ball by the horns and run with it and been taking it very seriously so so Surya first couple of questions for you then so firstly how does that make you feel as as a young person when there seems to be this kind of like ageism almost against you you know that because you're young and you're in it you you know you're you're only about this that and the other and we can't treat you with respect and this was that so how do you feel about that and secondly how has it felt to you as a young person who's been given this responsibility of having a go at life-changing practices like missing maps yeah that's a really good question it uh it feels like a barrier that you're, you're trying to punch through but you just can't get through because you just can't change your age until obviously you grow up, uh, but once once uh, I can actually do something like once I started doing Mapathon Club at Jesuit, uh, it just gave me so much self confidence and positivity and uh, I guess determination that I, I uh, passed through the barrier and now I'm actually able to make an impact even though I'm 15. Hmm. And uh, even in general, like, there's these big issues like climate change and they just feel so daunting uh, to young people like me that like. In 2030, we're going to start feeling fear, uh, facing even more serious effects than we already right, are right now. Mm. But uh, it, it just brings confidence that, hey, we can do something, even though we're only like 15. So I, I think making Mapathon Club at my high school was a, a pretty big uh, event in my life that, I, that we did it, that, like, that our age doesn't have to necessarily stop us from doing something bigger than us. I, I totally agree. And you've, I think it's perfect that you um, cited the whole, um, the youth empowerment through the, you know, with the climate crisis, because uh, the other thing that I've been working, the other group I've been working with, and I've been so privileged to do so, is the UK's uh, School Sustainability Network. And the way that they run it, and it's kind of headed by teachers and stuff, but they ensure that they bring in students and get the students to have agency and and you know an equal stake in what's going on and then this few group of those students went up to cop 26 to voice their and and speak to members of the government and things like that and and yeah and some of these some of these students are as young as 11 12 13 and i'm like they are taking a very serious issue that they know impacts other people and so yeah i've so i think that's a fantastic kind of um example that you've given there Hi folks, a chance for you to recharge your brew, but also a polite prod to remind you that it's so easy to support this podcast. Simply liking, sharing, rating and reviewing means that it will get on more people's radar. Also, there are a few links down in the description which may be of mutual benefit. Please do check them out. So thank you so much for, for those personal insights, uh, both. So we're going to move on to something uh, new for season two uh you know what we do as podcast hosts and producers we try to come up with new funny things to try and keep people interested have i don't know how this is going to work but this is a new feature for season two called barking up the wrong tree here's the barking so, yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, okay so what this is all about everybody is that it's going to be two uh, geographical stories or facts but only one of them is true okay so I'll read both of them out and then you two can discuss and decide which one is fake and which one is real. Right. Okay. So the first one, and this was published on December 20th, 2016. The title is why this animal's pee smells like buttered popcorn. <laughs> okay. Bear cats or bin emit a smell that strongly resembles popcorn. 
Um, they're neither bears nor cats, and they're Southeastern Asian mammals whose urine has a movie theater aroma. A study published in April found this strange scent is produced by a chemical compound in their urine called 2AP. This is the same substance that gives fresh popcorn its yummy smell, according to the study scientists. And when a popcorn <laughs> kernel is heated, the proteins and sugars create a chemical reaction, in turn forms 2AP. Okay, so that's the first one. So <laughs> That's an changed my pee. view of buttered popcorn forever. <laughs> okay, so the second one is uh, published uh, March 20th, 2020, so a bit more recent. And that is um, COVID returns wildlife. So scattered amidst um, a relentless barrage of news about COVID-19 surge cases, quarantine orders and medical supply shortages on Twitter this week, some happy stories have softened the blows. Swans have returned to deserted Phoenician canals, dolphins too, and a group of elephants had sauntered through a village in Yunnan, China, gotten drunk off corn wine and passed out in a tea garden. These reports of wildlife triumphs in countries hard hit by the novel coronavirus got hundreds of thousands of retweets. They went viral on Instagram and TikTok. They made the news headlines. So if there's a silver lining of the pandemic, people said it was. Animals were bouncing back, running free in a humanless world. So then you two, have a bit of a discuss amongst yourselves. Is it the return of wildlife because of COVID-19 or is it the animal's pee smells like buttered popcorn? <laughs> well, you've done really well because I think there's, you know, there's a grain of truth in each of these. I definitely know from my time as a park ranger in the North Cascades that there are animals whose urine has very specific smells so that you can kind of tell what's been where and they're marking their territory and all these kinds of things. The buttered popcorn is a stretch. <laughs> but I also, I remember, Surya, do you remember some of these stories about COVID, you know, as the world quieted down, what that kind of did to the natural world? I remember some things like that. Yeah, I did hear about uh, just like reduced emissions just for a little bit when mm -hmm. uh, COVID shut everything down. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't remember specifically reading any headlines about like animals like being positively impacted, but that does seem like it potentially could have happened. I know they both they both have a grain of truth. Okay, where would where would you put your money, Syria? Uh, I've that it's really tough, right? Uh, <laughs> I've, I've got to go with the first story because just uh, keep talking and I'll Google it. No, oh, yeah. <laughs> <Cheats>. <laughs> I remember Kit saying that the second story uh, hit national headlines, but I, I don't remember mm -hmm. reading it, the story. Mm -hmm. I do check the news. What do you well, think? I'm also, yeah, I'm a little suspicious of this March 20, 2020, because I'm sorry, I had no attention for anything. That's right when we all had to go to remote teaching and yeah life was crazy right then so hmm i i don't know if we were ready for good news yet at that time or if okay. we were all just freaking out at least in the states oh. great demonstration of critical thinking both of you yeah yeah okay so should we go with buttered popcorn even though that's going to ruin both the jelly belly beans <laughs> and movie theaters for life yeah let's do it. Okay. this is going to live rent free in your head for the rest of your oh, life God. And you are absolutely right. The true story is the animal. Yes. So that is a true story. And that comes from, um, and the reason why I picked both these stories is because of your connection with National Geographic, Lauren. So just very, very quickly, just tell everybody what your connection with Nat Geo is. Yeah. So um, I am a National Geographic certified educator and uh, went to Washington, D.C., where their headquarters are to get my certification and training. And then actually, Surya is a big reason why I am Nat Geo certified, because his Mapathon project, led by students, Ooh. was the one that I wrote up for my certification, that I said, hey, look what kids can do. And I made a fancy video featuring Surya and his team saying, here's how students can lead a project like this. So if people want to learn more about Surya's incredible project, um, I'm going to be posting again on my Twitter when this podcast launches links to the video. You can hear him and see blurry photos <laughs> to protect privacy of parts of his body and not his face so you can't identify him. 
<laughs> leading awesome. a marathon. Yeah, and we'll stick that, that link in the description to this episode as well. Yeah, so wonderful. Yeah. Because both these stories are from the National Geographic website. So uh, just to read a little bit more about the fake one. So after those first two paragraphs that I read, so this was a National Geographic article from March 2020. um, And the the, the sentence after the first two paragraphs says, but it wasn't real. So, um, so the swan, the the swans in the viral post regularly appear in the canals of uh, Burano, which is a small island in the Greater Venice metropolitan area where the photos were taken. But the Venetian dolphins were filmed in a port in Sardinia, hundreds of miles away. No one had figured this out. No one had figured out where the drunken elephant photos came from. But a Chinese news report debunked the viral posts. While elephants did recently come through a village in Yunnan Province, China, their presence isn't out of the norm. They aren't the elephants in the viral photos, and they didn't get drunk and pass out on the field. So um, basically, it's a story. It's a National Geographic story about, um, you know, how social media posts can go viral yeah. and be untrue. And they've used, obviously, a geographical example, as in the return of animals. To So, yeah. Very nice. Um, and the other article is uh, titled, you'll love it, I'll put a link in, it's, it's the 10 weirdest animal stories of 2016. So you've got um, the longest lived vertebrae may, may live 500 years, which is the Greenland shark, um, extremely rare white giraffe spotted, skiing cat filmed in action. <laughs> I'm just tempted <laughs> people to have a look at Caterpillar drums its anus to find friends. Um, was it? Yeah, uh, disco spider pulsates with baffling color. Two-headed yeah. sharks keep popping up. Then you've got the 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 buttered popcorn pee of the bear cats. Uh, Art- <laughs> I knew this one actually. Arctic foxes grow their own gardens. Um, <laughs> spider that looks like a leaf, and the last one is deep sea ghost shark filmed for the very first time. Oh so that's a, a, a wonderful article to read. So I'll put the link uh, in the description to that. Does this mean I now have to live in a world with two-headed sharks? I don't know if I'm okay with that. Yeah, I don't know why. I mean, so, I mean, Siri, I don't, I don't know if I, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do it. And no, I don't know if you're too young, but um, it's like that episode, The Simpsons, with the free-eyed fish. It's like, is this is what's going on with the two-headed shark? I don't know. Right, right. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's true. time to build my zombie barricade now. <laughs> As a surfer, I'm just not okay with that. The one-headed shark was was problem enough, and now I have to deal with two heads. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> One more thing to do before we finish off, and that is to spill the beans. Okay. One of our regular thing. And Lauren, you identify as the yes. mother of chickens. I do. <laughs> so, um, so you've got. So you like to raise your flock. For your own looks, Bob Ross, for example, has the most delicious hairdo. Right, okay. I'm just going to yeah. let you go for this. Um, <laughs> let's, this is this going to be something about your t- ex-teacher that you didn't know? So spill the beans then, Miss Sinclair. What's all this about chickens? I'm guessing Surya does know I have chickens. Do you yeah, know? Yeah. yeah. yeah because... I remember watching a video that was so funny in class. <laughs> yeah. You used a video in class? <laughs> Occasionally videos come out, but also it's very effective to tell young impressionable children that you butcher chickens so i raise them but i also eat them and young urban kids just immediately think of you as a killer which is quite an asset as a teacher you've actually put the words taken a life cold-blooded killer in in (laughs) the yeah (laughs) evil comes into the conversation a lot um cold-hearted yes so those are all helpful concepts to have on my side no uh you know we're portland and we have some of those some of those stereotypes and one that is very true on in my neighborhood anyway is everyone's got their own little backyard flock and i've got about 10 birds currently i lost one last week to some kind of predator as happens but bob ross is still very well bob ross is the only chicken that has been named by my students and because of that, I'm pregnant now, and they are all wanting to vote on names for the child. And I'm like, mm, see, you named my chicken Bob Ross. You will never get input on my child's name. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Ever. Sorry, you need to you make this happen. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, but Bob Ross is doing very good, very well. Um, she has an incredible head of hair. So she's my drag queen chicken because she is a she with a Bob name, and she has this head of hair well it's feathers obviously 
that looks like a drag queen's biggest parade feather headdress and makes everyone happy. And she recently got a nice hour-long bath and uh, hair drying because she had a little cold. So she needed a steam bath. And so she's doing very well right now. So you do take very, very good care of them. I cherish them. I use their eggs. I spend time with them. They're a really fun presence in the garden. Um, And then when they stop laying or if they get a lame leg or something like that, I feel like the humane thing to do really is to make sure that they don't even know it's happening and then they're gone. So it's, it's actually something that when I said, oh, I want to get chickens, it was important to me to say, you know, if I can't take care of that, maybe I should rethink my entire relationship to meat Mm. and maybe I should stop eating meat. So I learned from a friend how to butcher birds and I found that my brain can make the switch from pet and taking wonderful care of it and cuddling it and giving it a name to dinner. (laughs) Yeah. And a fantastic link to a season one episode where I talked to Lucy Eckersley, punk biologist, who talked about the um, farmer at the farmer's market telling her dad that this these sausages came from Clive the pig and he yes. could not eat those sausages because they were given a name you know they were personified as yeah in that respect and that this is exa- and I, I think that is a really really um the fact that some people might be listening to say oh you did it but actually everybody listen really really think about that thing that you're having but when's the last time you actually ate some meat is the, the disconnect between knowing that there's something mm-hmm. that goes on to get them from the field to your belly. Yeah. Is that, is that the comfort that's making, but I would say right. that, yeah, Lauren, you're, you've, you've got, you've got it down there. It's like, say, so if you're, if you're not willing to go through that process yourself, you probably shouldn't be eating meat. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's my personal take on it. I was mm. lucky during the, uh, I guess last school year, which was a full year of remote teaching for me, um, I also had a little homeschool group of all um, all non-binary students who just needed a year out from the pressures of Aww. other school situations. And so the five of us would go on field trips and did everything together. And they wanted to see if they could do it too. So we butchered a bird together and then ate her with different uh, barbecue sauces. <laughs> and they really enjoyed the experience and just how that thought process was really grounding for them and really helped them think through their relationship to food. So it was, dare I say, a highlight of the school year. No, I I am. I'm going to say it, everybody. I really, really love the sound of all of that. That's just really, really, I just gone, oh, not just because, you know, you're working with, with uh, members of a community that I'm a part of, but also that whole kind of real, no, this is how we're going to reconnect to certain things. And again, another connection back to when I spoke to the wonderful Candice Lloyd and Tawny Stowe, the, you know, the, from the um, Matee uh, culture, talking about our disconnect from yeah. food. And yeah. and this is one way we can reconnect, you know. So, yeah. and of course, and the chickens therefore have fulfilled their purpose as a companion and, and mm-hmm. find your eggs. And then they, and then they don't go to waste right. at the end of their life. But they also don't suffer. And that's something that in Portland, a lot of people get them as pets. And then when they're done with them, they take them to feed stores or pet stores to say, can you do something so I don't have to think about Mm. it? And generally what's going to happen is those birds will be butchered, especially roosters. And I would rather take the responsibility on myself. But vegans out there, don't at me. It's a (laughs) a very well thought through uh decision that i've made that yeah relates to my my husband's Matisse background my french background i was raised with a farm full of chickens and pigeons um in, in my family so yeah it's it's an important part of life for me so and yes it's odd how much it comes up in school <laughs> and um what i will say is to everybody excuse the pun but you've given everybody food for thought but I don't do it. Yeah, I do it. Right. Okay. We're, unfortunately, we are running out of time here. So we're going to end up with our last little bit of uh, We Are All Geographers, um, where we link all the guests together in one big thread. And um, at the end of season one, I took all the words that every guest come up with and I wove them into a poem. Whether I do that at the end of season two this season, I don't know. 
Um, but you have the honour of coming up with the first word. But of course, you've got to connect back to season one, both of you, because mm. at the end of season one, speaking to the aforementioned wonderful Tawny Stowe, um, she gave us the word reverent or reverence. So mm. now, Surya, do you know, are you okay with the definition of reverent or how, how do you understand the word reverent? Uh, could you remind me of the definition? <laughs> no, I'll let, I'll let, I'll let I'll, I'm going to leave this to your ex-teacher. Yeah, I would definitely think of reverence <laughs> as almost what we talked about earlier, the way we feel about the Pacific Northwest and awe, a respect. Um, yeah. I, I usually think about the beauty or the value of something. Okay. So I really like that in relationship to geography. And yep. that's, yeah, that's All very right. interesting. So, so the way this works, Syria, is that I will time 30 seconds, okay? And then you and Miss Sinclair just got to basically talk about how reverence is related to geography and Miss Sinclair has already given a, some hints. So, you know, the way that, you know, that, that, that really kind of special feeling of expression, deep connection to a place, you know, respect for, a, for something, whatever, that's reverence, right? Okay, so... Um, <clears throat> when you're ready, you two, and anyone can start and make sure the other one can get a few seconds in as well. You want to start, Surya? Uh, okay. Uh, I guess like, uh, respect for like, uh, just Portland's beauty and like the trees are just really beautiful. Um, yeah, I just, I, uh, just, there's just so much nature here and it, it's just mm -hmm. important to, I guess, respect. It, it's beautiful. I guess. I, I'm not sure what else. No, I love that. I love that reverence for our Pacific Northwest, for everything that shaped it, the geographical processes that shaped it, and the people who have shaped it and been caretakers. Okay. Yeah, and time's up. There you go. Nice little bit of reverence for your local area in 30 seconds. Right, so for our second guest of season two, you get the chance of coming up with a word. And it could be something related to what you've been talking about, or it could be something completely random. Just don't let it be something like toenail or squirrel, like last season with some <laughs> people. So, although, although they were linked very well in the next episode. So, so what decide? What do you think, you two? What would you like to give our following guest the chance to link to geography? Well, I'm glad we get to brainstorm, Surya, because Ooh. the word I had thought of in advance, I I, I hadn't quite. It it didn't fit the way this fit. So we need a new idea. <laughs> What's something we would want to hear other geographers riff on? Uh, this is the hardest part of the whole entire podcast. I know, especially since it needs to be one word. I know. See, I was just going to be silly and mention one of my favorite obsessions, which is drag. And I wanted to hear okay. someone talk about drag in terms of geography because RuPaul, my icon famously says we're born naked and everything else is drag and so i think that that can apply to being a geographer and i think also mm. the way drag i i watch all the drag shows uk australia us all all of these and there's very geographical interpretations of drag so anyway that was my original idea and i don't think it fits with reverence in the same well it's, it's great. not an adjective it's not the same like um, universal abstract concept. Knowing the quirkiness of my next guest, I think this would be absolutely fine. Oh, is it Alistair? No, it's not Alistair. <laughs> I'd love, okay, to, okay. love to. It's not Alistair. No, you got away with this one, Alistair. Um, but Surya, I mean, you, you can veto that and come up with a different idea or you could just say, no, you can have that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, that one's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Perfect is so perfect. Oh, bless. Okay. Um, so, um, Lauren, I know you have uh, a Twitter account, which I strongly recommend people follow because you do post some wonderful, fantastic stuff there and you're just a fantastic person to connect to. So, yeah, do let, let us know how um, we can connect with you. Yeah, Twitter is the best place. Um, it's at Mrs. Sinclair Maps. And there's also a link there to my website, which is a partnership with Esri. Um, like you mentioned, I am a teacher consultant with Esri working on their learn team. And so I, I work hard to take the things I learn from students in the classroom 
and turn them into resources that any teacher can use with any students anywhere in the world. Um, So I'm constantly working on that. You can see, for example, a page uh, that is 100% dedicated to how to start a mapathon. If you want to do that with students, including the video with Surya and his compadres. Um, I also have my series of mapping epidemics that started with my students' own natural interest in March 2020 of these COVID dashboards going around. So we created our own investigation of how GIS intersects with, uh, with the current pandemic and past epidemics. So lots of resources that I just wow. try to make as perfectly available to teachers as possible. And the link is there on my Twitter feed. Amazing. Thank you so, so much. And, um, and yeah, and that's the way to connect with, with yourself as well, Syria, is that people can go and watch that stuff that you did for Mapathon. Do you have any parting words to say, um, Syria, to anyone you want to say hi to or perhaps, perhaps parents, since I know they're listening? <laughs> <laughs> no, I just wanted to say really quickly that uh, I remember the unit that Miss Sinclair taught, uh, kind of taught the mapping epidemics unit. And I remember we spoke, uh, focused a lot on cholera. And it was really yeah. cool how John Snow he uh, mapped he figured out the the source of cholera, which was a well that was like infecting everybody, and he just used maps and it was it was very fascinating. But yeah, I'm just really thankful to Miss Sinclair for giving this opportunity to me to be here. It was a lot of fun, and thank you, Kit. It was it was oh, a lot of fun this morning. Absolute pleasure to have you here. Really, thank really you, pleasure. Sir, yeah. And the, the future's the future's bright with with young people like yourself in it. Absolutely. So, So thank you so much to you both and um, I will see you soon. (laughs) Thanks, Kit. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you had fun. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe so more stories and experiences can drop into your favourite podcast app. If you fancy being a guest or have any feedback, follow us on Twitter at CoffeeJogPod and send us a DM. Or you could email coffeeandjog at geogramblings.com. Until next time, keep jogging.